Okay, everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations and security policy, who's also worked for a number of liberal political campaigns and organizations. I've also gotten to live outside the U.S. for a couple of years, which, I think, puts me in a good position to comment for my American audience on some events of note happening outside the country, and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience just what the hell's going on in American politics. So, the Democrats had a rough night last Tuesday. We lost all three statewide elections in Virginia, which President Biden carried by like 10 points last year. We also barely held on to the governorship in even bluer New Jersey, which Biden won by like 16 points last year. That sucks. Of course, it raises a bunch of questions about why that happened, what Democrats should take away from it, what it means for the midterms next year, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what should we take away from all of this? These elections in New Jersey and Virginia are super weird in that they happen in off-off years, which is to say, so there's a presidential election, the midterm elections that happen two years later would be an off-year election. Uh, but in these odd number years when the gubernatorial, well, when the statewide elections happen in New Jersey and Virginia, it's not even a midterm year, so it is thus an off-off year. The party opposite of a new president has won the governorship in both of those states literally every time since, like, the early 1980s. So this year, Democrats technically beat the historical odds by winning in New Jersey. 11 of the last 12 gubernatorial elections in Virginia specifically have gone to the party not in the White House. Also, I mean, it wasn't exactly a blowout. It wasn't like we lost by 10 points. I mean, uh, the Republican Glenn Youngkin beat Democrat Terry McAuliffe by, like, two points. Then again, the Democrats have not lost Virginia at the state level in 12 years, and Biden just won the state by 10 points last November. So we can't just chalk this up to history. There are definitely some other things that we need to consider. Now, since Congress just this weekend passed the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure package, which is a very, very good thing, I think, uh, one of the things that I believe was a pretty big factor in what happened on Tuesday now looks a whole lot different than it did at the time of the election. But as of last Tuesday, Congress had spent months and months, that's to say mostly Democrats in Congress, had spent months and months trying to figure out how we could get these two big bills that are central to President Biden's agenda through Congress, which has meant a whole bunch of hand-wringing and gridlock and the appearance of incompetence and being unable to get things done. Now, in reality, this is a little bit more what the usual order looks like in Congress, but I mean, that hasn't really happened very much in the last decade and a half, so people are not super used to seeing the messy sausage-making process that is getting lost through Congress, and it's mostly just looked like the Democrats were ineffective and unable to get things through, thanks to the intransigence of two quote-unquote Democratic senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema of West Virginia and Arizona, respectively. Leading up to the election in Virginia, a whole bunch of Democrats, chiefly among them Terry McAuliffe, the Democrats' nominee for the gubernatorial election in Virginia, were begging the relevant people in Congress, which I'll spare you the details, but there was some uh, sort of wrangling between those two, again, barely Democratic senators and uh, the House Progressive Caucus in terms of what order things would get passed in. Bottom line, um, a bunch of Democrats were really, really hoping that at least one of these bills would get passed before the election in Virginia so that Terry McAuliffe would have something to run on, but that didn't happen, which means that um, all of the news for Democrats coming out of Washington was very, very bleak, and that's certainly not a good thing for the party, uh, sort of for the candidate 
of that party running in that election in Virginia, which I think was a pretty big factor in the fact that Terry McAuliffe was not able to pull it out there. Related to the sort of hashtag Dems in disarray meme coming out of Washington in the context of this debate in Congress, President Biden himself has been suffering from some pretty low poll numbers at the moment. And I gotta say, I think if Biden's polling in the mid-50s, McAuliffe doesn't lose in Virginia. Now, I gotta say, for the record, the fact that President Biden's numbers are a bit low at the moment, I believe, is largely not his fault. One of the main factors in why I think President Biden's numbers are lower than they should be is because the spread of the Delta variant has meant that us getting past COVID as a society has gone a whole lot slower than it should have. Now, the fact that the Delta variant has spread all across the United States is not the president's fault. It is the fault of idiots refusing to get their vaccines. It is the fault of Republican politicians sensing a chance to make a Democratic president's life difficult, encouraging those idiots to not get their vaccines because they care more about making a Democratic president's life difficult than they do about their supposed patriotism. The U.S. had a massive head start on suppressing the pandemic. President Biden and his administration caused the U.S. to have such a huge stockpile of the vaccine so early on, almost really to the point of <laughs> selfishness from a global standpoint. I mean, I remember sitting over here in Europe watching for months and months jealously as my all of my friends and family back in the U.S. were able to get vaccinated in like March and April and stuff, while those of us over here in Europe and frankly almost everywhere else in the world had to wait for a very, very long time before we got our hands on the thing. President Biden and his administration, they did their jobs. The aforementioned idiots failed in their basic responsibility as Americans and, you know, as humans, frankly. And now, despite the fact that the U.S. had this massive head start, the U.S. has a lower vaccination rate than, you know, most other developed countries who started off months and months behind the U.S. in terms of administering the vaccine. That is why the Delta variant spread out of control and continues to, even though numbers are finally starting to go down. It's not President Biden's fault. He does not deserve the blame for it. It is not fair to him that his numbers are low, partly as a result of it. Almost certainly another reason why the president's numbers are not what they should be at the moment has to do with America's very messy-looking withdrawal from Afghanistan from this past summer. I've largely avoided commenting on Afghanistan on this podcast, which is ironic since in theory, the whole international security thing is kind of my calling card, kind of the area where I'm probably the most well-positioned to speak. Um, but I've been hesitant to get into it uh, on this show, I think because I've had such mixed feelings about the whole situation there. And I guess there was a part of me that didn't want to comment on something that I didn't have a super clear position on, which in retrospect, I think may have been kind of stupid. So I might try to not do that from now on. So polls had shown for quite a while that big majorities of the American people had wanted to get out of Afghanistan. But I had for a while been one of the smallish number of people that was not sold on the idea that we should even be leaving or pulling our military presence out of Afghanistan at all. Now, over the last like 18 months or so before we pulled out, the U.S. had not lost a single soldier in that period of time. And we only had like a couple thousand troops deployed. That's to say, it appeared that we were maintaining, although not a perfect situation, some measure of stability in a country that would almost certainly collapse if we pulled out at a relatively low cost. I don't mean to imply that everyone who, when polled, said, yes, let's get out, uh, was necessarily insensitive to the human rights situation in Afghanistan, but I think also 
given my proximity to these issues of Islamic extremism and, and human rights and security policy and stuff like that, it was impossible for me not to think of pulling out of Afghanistan as inevitably resulting in the rise of effectively an ISIS-style government in the country, a complete subjugation of women, their effective elimination from public life and the horrific death of anyone who wasn't straight or anyone who really in any way didn't completely toe the line of a strict interpretation of Sharia, which, again, made it really hard for me to not want to find a way for the U.S. to prevent that from happening, and the most simple course uh, for that would be just to stay in. But here's the thing. Part of the reason that we haven't lost anybody in a year and a half has to be because the Trump administration basically negotiated a surrender deal with the Taliban, where we gave a timeline for withdrawal in exchange for having them not attack any of our people. Now, of course, during that period of time, the Taliban basically went around the country quietly marginalizing or assassinating people who would potentially get in their way to taking over the country when the U.S. was out. And this meant that Biden was kind of boxed in. Like, if we were going to stay way past the withdrawal date that Trump and his then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo set in place in their surrender deal with the Taliban, the Taliban would have started attacking the small number of Americans that were left, which would have necessitated sending more troops into Afghanistan. This would mean, of course, a dramatic increase in the price of doing the thing that I and some others instinctively leaned toward, which was staying in to maintain stability. And Biden is somebody who... I think, feels that price a lot more than me. I mean, it's easy for me, Oliver Kendall, to talk in abstract terms about the quote-unquote cost of having troops deployed on the other side of the world to prop up a, as it turns out, fairly corrupt regime some 20 years after the reason we even went in in the first place. I'm not in the military. I have some friends in actually various of the militaries who had or could have troops deployed in Afghanistan, but nobody in my immediate family is. Whereas... President Biden's son himself, in fact, deployed to Iraq, and President Biden is convinced that his time there probably contributed to the brain cancer that eventually killed him. Furthermore, back in 2009, Biden was one of the lone voices in the Obama administration against sending more troops to Afghanistan, and he pretty famously felt that the military and secretaries of defense and state Robert Gates and Hillary Clinton basically took advantage of a young president without much foreign policy experience to push Obama into sending more troops into Afghanistan. So again, whether or not and there, there's a debate over how true that is, whether or not it is, Biden very much believes it. And so he is specifically not the guy who's going to essentially re-up the war in Afghanistan. Okay, so if it makes some degree of sense that Biden didn't want to stay in Afghanistan, what about the fact that the country fell so fast after we pulled out? Well, first of all, it turns out that while the Taliban wasn't really attacking Americans after Trump's surrender deal with them, they weren't, as I mentioned before, exactly sitting at home just, you know, abusing their various spouses and playing Scrabble until the Americans left. They were busy laying the groundwork for a takeover. Further, the fact that the Afghan army itself fell so quickly appears to be at least partially the result of bad policy decisions made years before Biden even thought about running for the presidency. A lot of the analysis in the wake of the Afghan army's rapid collapse implied that the U.S. had basically built the Afghan military as we would have built a military in a, like, a wealthy first world country. That's to say, we built that military in a way that relied heavily on complex systems and advanced technology that Afghanistan on its own 
didn't have the resources or know-how to maintain, which means they were fairly effective in the context of support from the U.S. military and U.S. contractors and stuff. But when you pull those things out, well, all that complex equipment, if you don't have anybody who, who can maintain it if it breaks or something like that, it's just a pile of metal. Now, whether those policies were in place due to short-sightedness about the future ability of the Afghan army to hold that country, or by the desire of U.S. weapons manufacturers to sell a bunch of complicated, expensive stuff <laughs> anywhere they possibly could, or a combination thereof, the outcome of this is a military that was just not prepared to stand up in the face of a concerted, determined attack from an insurgency group that had been waiting in the wings for 20 years to retake the country. So as a result, you get a super messy collapse of an ally like five minutes after we pull out, necessitating a chaotic airlift of as many of our former allies and partners as possible, which resulted in a whole bunch of really bad images and videos from the first days at the Kabul airport. Now, in the end, we did get a ton of people out of Afghanistan, way more than we managed to at the end of Vietnam. It was, in the end, a pretty historic evacuation. But the coverage of that was a lot less extensive than those first couple of days of chaos. If it bleeds, it leads, after all. Also, just two more random points to make to round this out. Firstly, some of our NATO allies were apparently pissed at the U.S. for pulling out of Afghanistan. And I get it. They didn't feel adequately consulted, and that's understandable, especially given the fears among a lot of them that they could get hit with a massive wave of refugees like the one that resulted from the Syrian civil war. But as in the case of, of the Syrian civil war, where they probably could have done more about it, they could have gone in to a greater degree. They could have taken over from the U.S., which has done most of the heavy lifting for the past two decades. Several of these allies do themselves have pretty capable militaries that they could have deployed more of if they really felt so strongly about it. Secondly, <laughs> looks like the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan is being complicated somewhat by ISIS, the Islamic State, running its own insurgency against them, because apparently they're not quite crazy enough. Jeep, sorry guys, it sure does suck having a bunch of religious lunatics setting off car bombs and messing things up while you're trying to set up a country, doesn't it? In the end, when looked at with a bit more nuance, pulling out of Afghanistan was always going to be a debacle. But sooner or later, it probably needed to happen. And although there were some legitimate questions about what this particular pullout says about American credibility in a way that could complicate some of our alliances in the short term, there were no good options. The American people rightly or wrongly wanted it. And in the long term, it's probably going to be better to not be bogged down in Afghanistan. As much as part of me wants to say, yeah, well, we've had troops in Korea, Japan, and Germany for the last half century, and that's really helped maintain stability in those regions, which is true. The Afghanistan situation is just not truly comparable. Phew, okay, didn't plan to spend that long on the Afghanistan of it all, but I guess as I've had a lot of opinions about it and haven't said anything on here for months, uh, it had to go somewhere. Bottom line, Biden had no good options, and I think that in the long term, people will come to see that. But for now... The images of refugees clinging to the wheels of planes taking off from Kabul International are fresh in everybody's mind, and that really dinged up Biden's poll numbers. And as I said before, to bring it back to Tuesday's election results, if Biden is polling in the mid-50s, I don't think McAuliffe loses the governor's race in Virginia. Hey folks, before the episode continues, I just want to take a second to ask you if you haven't already, please, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. Then after you do that, Hit the little button next to it with the three dots or whatever it is on your preferred platform 
hit share, and spam that link out to everybody you can think of. That way you don't miss an episode, and it really does help get the show off the ground, which I appreciate very much. All right, back to it. Another reason the Democrats lost last Tuesday, at least in Virginia, looks like it has to do with the suburbs. Part of the reason Democrats have been so easily winning that state over the last decade or so is because of increasing support from voters in the suburbs, especially those surrounding D.C. But although we again won those areas by quite a bit last week, the numbers weren't nearly as impressive as in the last couple of elections. This would seem to imply that a lot of these folks who once upon a time voted Republican and have been solidly Democratic in the last few elections may have actually just been visiting, tourists as it were, rather than residents in Democratville, and more willing to vote for a Republican when that party's leader isn't a proto-fascist with orange-lead paint smeared all over his face. Now, of course, Trump still does own the Republican Party, but with him a lot less at the center of stage and off Twitter, it was a lot easier for Yunkin, the Republican candidate for governor of Virginia, to distance himself. I also suspect that some more moderate suburban voters are a bit less ready to totally throw in with the Democratic Party because of the next issue that I'm going to talk about. So something like almost 25% of voters in this election said that education was their number one issue. That never happens. And I would argue that it didn't happen here either, because education in the context of the Virginia gubernatorial election didn't just mean education. Quote-unquote education was a stand-in for the whole range of cultural issues emanating from the further left, uh, what we might call political correctness, wokeism, whatever you want to call it. Nobody seems quite sure of how to name it. Now, here's where a part of me is tempted to just duck. But as I've hinted at in a number of previous episodes, I am sympathetic to the growing, well, growing at least in public. I suspect a lot more of us have thought this all along but not wanted to go there. Number of people who think that we in the Democratic Party need to start to at least move toward addressing this issue. Uh, Or we're going to keep losing elections that we shouldn't otherwise be losing, even though there really aren't a lot of elected Democrats pushing a lot of this agenda. Nancy Pelosi doesn't spend most of her time giving speeches extolling the virtue of political correctness. But we're still getting tagged with it in a way that I think really jeopardizes our ability to win elections. Okay, so how did quote-unquote education in Virginia become a stand-in for the whole woke thing? To make a long story as short as possible, there is a thing called critical race theory, which is an academic movement to examine more closely the cross-section between race and law enforcement in the U.S., along with social, economic, cultural issues that result in different outcomes from people of different races. It deals with things like institutional structural racism and the way those intersect with other things to disadvantage certain people. And for the last couple years, there has been a strong push by right-wing activists to gin up fear over critical race theory as some sort of scary, ill-defined boogeyman representing some theoretical hyper-woke agenda being shoved down kids' throats in schools. Now, here's the thing. Critical race theory is not being taught at Virginia schools. In fact, it's usually just a thing that's taught at the undergraduate and graduate level. So this whole, I'm going to get this scary critical race theory thing out of our schools shtick by Glenn Youngkin, the soon-to-be governor of Virginia, is complete bullshit. But he and the other right-wing activists trying to create this freakout over the not-actual fact of critical race theory in schools weren't politically brilliant enough to just create a concern about this out of thin air, as I think some folks on our side would like to believe. There has been 
for at least eight or nine years, a well-founded concern among a lot of people, not just Tucker Carlson's audience, about rampant, wackadoodle, far-left, almost masturbatory political correctness rampaging across a bunch of college campuses in America. Now, some of us want to poo-poo this as a non-issue, a figment of some people's imagination. I'm sorry, but it's not. It was definitely a thing on my college campus, and more and more people from prominent academics up to and including former President Obama have been speaking up about a new sort of intolerance among a lot of young people on the left for views that don't align perfectly with their own. Tempted though I am <laughs> to go on a rant about the coddled children of helicopter parents arriving on campus, misled into believing the college is never supposed to actually challenge any of their preconceptions, four years of fun in which they never see or hear anything that makes them uncomfortable, I'm not going to go further down that rabbit hole. But if you're interested in this broader issue of rigidity on college campuses and a bunch of students over the last decade or so having gone nuts, I suggest checking out Professor Jonathan Haidt from Columbia, who's really been out front of this issue and has started an organization called Heterodox Academy to try to promote some ideological diversity on campuses. I also, sometimes, hear people dismiss this issue as something isolated to college campuses. Sure, the kids are a little crazy these days and have increasingly scary views in terms of respecting free speech reflected in the push to cancel speakers, sometimes in ways that have gotten violent, demanding censorship of ideas they disagree with, but this is just the kids. It won't affect the rest of us. But this stuff has pretty undeniably made its way off of campus, too, in a couple of ways. For one thing, it's not like campuses are hermetically sealed environments where no one outside can see or hear what goes on there. A lot of people were aware of increasing incidences of wackadoodle PC nonsense on college campuses and, I think, didn't like it even without Fox News constantly making hay out of those stories, which of course they have, because why wouldn't they? It's a chance to make liberals look ridiculous, which is why they exist. Also, quote-unquote cancel culture has definitely made its way off of college campuses and into the mainstream lately. And while I certainly agree that there are some views that are really just beyond the pale, and some people probably should just shut up and go away, and of course some of the pushback to cancel culture is undoubtedly from people with power who don't want to lose it, I think a lot of people are a bit creeped out by this idea that views you don't like should never have to be heard, and anyone who espouses them, even if it was out of ignorance rather than bad intentions, should just be disappeared with no possibility of redemption. Now, of course, it's worth noting that people on the right certainly cancel people too, but it's undeniably something more associated with the left. This isn't great from an electoral standpoint, since polls show that everyone on the right hates quote-unquote political correctness, and a huge portion of people not on the right do too. So, and I promise I'm getting to how this links to Virginia, how does this get into the whole education issue? Well, first of all, college is, you know, education. And I'm sure some people who hate what they think is going on on college campuses were very amenable to a politician appearing to attack something that feels like it might be related to PC stuff on campuses. Definitely one avenue to helping a Republican politician make quote-unquote education a stand-in for the broader cultural debate around this desire by some to just disappear opinions that make them uncomfortable. Again, without me saying whether or not I think some of those opinions are unconscionable, and I do, the idea of free expression is that that includes stuff you find repugnant, and that idea is pretty firmly rooted in America, which is a good thing. Also, as I mentioned earlier, largely due to the efforts of right-wing activists with, I might argue, a kind of racist agenda, this term critical race theory has been floating around in the ether. 
Now, I don't claim to be an expert specifically on critical race theory beyond what I said earlier, and I think, in general, it's important that America's schools be not just places that produce graduates who can read, write, and do algebra, but people who can think critically and learn how to coexist respectfully with people who aren't exactly the same as they are, since that's sort of, by definition, what America is and is supposed to be, a melting pot, not some homogenous thing when it comes to background or way of thinking. I think that means teaching the full history of America to students, the good and the bad. I discussed a few episodes back my concept of what a mature patriot looks like, in short, someone who is able to see America's bright spots, but also its flaws. Because if you really love the country, you should probably want to improve it, rather than just pretend everything is and has always been perfect. That said, there are a lot of people on the right who, it appears, would rather just not teach accurate history in American schools, something a lot of red states have kind of made the norm. That's how you get people still, somehow, growing up thinking that the Civil War was about states' rights and not about racist Southerners wanting to be able to own other humans, or just kind of not having learned about Japanese internment during World War II, or almost anything about the Vietnam War, or Jim Crow, or a whole number of other unsavory parts of our history often to do with, in some way or other, screwing over women and minorities. Side note, I would suggest to my fellow people on the left who want to win the messaging war on this, stop trying to explain critical race theory to people who just don't have the time or interest to listen to a long lecture on the subject, and just boil this school issue down to Republicans think American students are too delicate to be taught history. Period. That said, there has increasingly been commentary lately, and not just nonsense from the right-wing activists, although unfortunately that dominates, about some tenets of hardcore woke or PC, I don't know, postmodernist stuff seeping into education at a much younger, definitely lower than university level in a way that sometimes sounds a little crazy. As I stated before, I think the goal of American schools should be to teach kids not just how to read and write and do math, but, besides basic civics, another thing that I'll gripe about some other day, how to think critically and to coexist respectfully with people who aren't the same as they are. I don't think teaching elementary school kids to divide themselves between oppressed and oppressors based on demographic factors over which they have no control is how we do that. That, by the way, is a real thing that's happened in a few school districts. It's been reported by the BBC, the Washington Post, and a whole bunch of right-wing outlets, only too happy to jump on an example of the radical left trying to brainwash our kids with woke extremism, when of course what they should be doing is teaching them that the Civil War was just a big misunderstanding and the Tuskegee experiments are just a rumor. There's a delicate balance to be struck here between, on the one hand, not making kids at all aware of the problem racism still poses, and, on the other, Teaching little kids to be constantly thinking of themselves by their demographic and separating themselves on that basis. That sounds, again, kind of crazy and divisive and counterproductive, at least to me. And increasingly, a number of public figures who are not exactly Klan's people, people like Caitlin Flanagan, John McWhorter, Bill Maher, Joe Scarborough and some others on MSNBC, Coleman Hughes, Sam Harris, I think, uh, among a number of others, have started commenting on this lately. And I'll just say again, without opining on the virtues of critical race theory specifically, I think as a college-level area of study, it's good and important, I think there's a balance to be struck. And I think a lot of people, even ones who acknowledge the darker sides of American history and the fact that structural racism still exists and want to push back on it, 
are uncomfortable with some of what they're hearing out of some of these maybe isolated instances of things going too far in some schools. And all that is how you're able to make quote-unquote education a catch-all for backlash to issues around political correctness. Even if it's horseshit because Virginia schools are not teaching critical race theory and, as far as we know, there has been no, new, uh, no move to make them do so. Besides one moron cutting an ad for Yunkin where she bitches about her son who was in high school at the time being shocked and having nightmares because he had to read a Toni Morrison novel, which is just weak on so many levels. Some on our side are going to want to either ignore this factor of a full quarter of voters saying that they were voting on, uh, education. Others will want to make themselves feel better by dismissing these people as bigots who voted for Glenn Youngkin because of their deep-seated racism. But Biden and Kamala Harris won Virginia by 10 points a year ago, which means probably a decent chunk of those people ended up voting for Youngkin. Oh, and by the way, the Republican who was just elected lieutenant governor of Virginia is a black woman and an immigrant, so I think not. Furthermore, it's worth noting that it's not like these questions of wokeism, political correctness, or ones where all people of color support it and all white people hate it because they're fragile racist monsters attempting to cling to power. Though, sure, there are certainly some to whom that does apply. But non-white Democrats, on average, are actually a lot less progressive, including on a lot of these cultural issues, than white Democrats, polling shows. One interesting example of this, also from last Tuesday, in Minneapolis, there was a ballot initiative to replace the police department with a broader Department of Public Safety, more in line with what people who use the, as I've said before, I think, incredibly counterproductive slogan, defund the police have in mind. That's to say, folding law enforcement into a broader department that would include social workers, therapists, and that sort of thing, which I think overall is a really good idea, since police, as of now, often end up in the position of doing jobs that they're probably not the best suited to be doing, just because they're the only ones who show up when you dial 911. Of course, the people who wrote the initiative renamed basically the actual police part of it Violence Interrupters, which... For God's sake, why are some people on our side so incapable of not sounding like an Onion article parodying sophomores at Sarah Lawrence? But even though this wouldn't actually mean uh, like having no law enforcement, and even in the city where George Floyd was murdered and there was a huge backlash and movement for police reform in its wake, the proposal lost by like 15 points in super blue Minneapolis. And here's the interesting thing. A majority of white voters voted for it. A majority of black voters did not. I just think that's a fairly interesting commentary on the state of these issues within the Democratic Party itself. Bottom line, no. I don't think Democrats necessarily need to freak out that we had such a rough night last Tuesday. It is, after all, totally in line with the last 30 years of political history, and in fact, a little better since we didn't also lose New Jersey. But unfortunately, getting our asses handed to us in the midterms that come afterward is also pretty well in line with the last many, many years of political history. So I think it's a pretty clear wake-up call that we need to get more of our agenda passed and implemented in time for next year's midterm elections, or we're going to look like ineffective wimps who can't get anything done, hardly what people want to vote for. So it's a very good thing, then, that since Virginia, we've passed the infrastructure bill, uh, along with a couple of other good pieces of news. Also, it really is time for <coughs> Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, to please Stop holding up the agenda that the entire rest of the party agrees on and let the goddamn bills pass. 
Also, could we please elect a couple more blue senators so we can make these two incredible jackasses irrelevant? Also, as I mentioned earlier, I think the numbers in some of the Virginia, the Northern Virginia counties where we crushed Trump before, and Yunkin too, but not by as much, make it pretty clear that we need to really be aware of the possibility that we've been loaned the suburbs and not given them, and we cannot take them for granted in the next set of elections. Finally, even though no Democratic candidates that I know of, like, actively endorse every lunatic college kid who throws a tantrum because the, I don't know, the mushu pork in the cafeteria is cultural appropriation or something, or every self-righteous Salon.com article raising its eyebrows at this year's batch of insensitive Halloween costumes, or suggest that elementary schools should teach half the kindergartners that they're irredeemable and the other half that they're inescapably victims. Even though none of this stuff is exactly part of the Democratic Party platform, it appears that when an election is a referendum on wokeism and PC stuff, the blue team tends to lose. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss the next one, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, or any of the other main platforms. If you didn't like it, but feel like doing something nice for somebody, subscribe anyway. If you really want to do me a favor, please like or review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it, or better yet, share the show with someone who might also be interested. As always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork. Until the next episode, thanks for listening. Thank you.